So we're in Leviticus chapter 4, we're actually going to be chapter 4, verse 1 to Leviticus 5, 13, though we're not going to read the whole section of scripture here. And so as we go into this time today, I wanted to begin by um, just pointing out that at any point in time, you know, a DC-10 could fall on your head, like audio adrenaline said, or maybe the, some new variant of COVID will come out and we'll all drop over dead. I think when the reality is, I think when you look at the world around us, you see that there's a lot of fear. We have idolatries of safety. Everybody's afraid of dying. Um, as David Crowder said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And um, the reality is you're going to die. You're going to die. And that doesn't mean you should be flipping and drive down the highway, you know, standing on your handlebars at 100 miles an hour. But you will die one day, and you will stand before the Lord. And you'll stand before the Lord, and he'll want to know why he should let you into his presence. And that's really what the essence of this sermon deals with. That why should God allow us into his presence? Why should he allow us in at all instead of just sending, his, sending us far away from his presence to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? And how do you have security in knowing where you're going to be or where you're not going to be? Or how you can know for sure that if you die today or tomorrow or next week, you don't have to hope that you've been good enough or smart enough or gave enough or attended church enough, but you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt what is going to happen to you. So those are the themes that are touched upon in this section of Leviticus 4, which is called the sin offering, is the offering that we're dealing with. You see, Leviticus outlines five different types of sacrifices or offerings. Um, and the first three, which we've been dealing with, are largely voluntary. They're mostly related to worship. And now the final two are not voluntary. These are required, and they are focused specifically on sin. So whereas the first three celebrate God's promises with God's people, these final two talk about what do you do when we break the promises and when we live outside the bounds of God's law and how that requires what's called atonement, which is basically payment as well as cleansing. And so some of the offerings that we went through so far, if you're joining us for the first time, the first week we talked about the burnt offering, which is basically an appeal for acceptance as I go to worship the Lord. It's a kind of a marker of surrender to the Lord. Then we talked about the grain offering, and the grain offering is a prayer of remembrance when essentially we ask, or the Israelites would ask the Lord to remember his faithful covenant to them. And then as they included the salt of the covenant in that offering, it was a reminder to them that God would in fact remember them. And then we looked at the sacrifice of peace offering, where they would burn the fat. And that was to worship God for the peace that the worshiper had with their creator. And so those three offerings were all about worship in the, in the Israelite framework of the law. And so the sin offering, which we're looking at today, is for making amends for when the peace that the covenant brought is then fractured. So that peace is lost and the relationship is fractured. And what do you do about that? And then the next offering is called the guilt offering or the reparation offering, which has to do with 
um, righting the wrong that's caused by sin. And so this has to do with the sin and the relational fracturing, and then the reparation or guilt offering has to do with restitution, reparation, or repairing what the sin caused. And so if you're already zoning out, this is what you need to remember about Leviticus, okay? Then just, you can write this down. You can put it in your little notebooks. By the way, we got new Leviticus journals. They're up by the front. If you didn't get one, you can go grab one now. But this is what I want you to know, and you should put this like on the inside cover. The big picture of Leviticus is this. God is holy. We are not. But the gospel is far greater news than you ever realized. God is holy. We are not. But the gospel is far greater news than you ever realized. Okay? So Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, dot, dot, dot. Let's stop there. Unintentional sin. The whole sin offering deals with what we would call unintentional sin. Um, the, in the Hebrew, it's actually by straying. If anyone sins by straying. But the meaning implied has to do with unintentional sin. This refers to wandering, refers to going wrong, it re refers to making a mistake. It's sin that arises from the weakness of the flesh. Well, I didn't mean to do that. It's a sin of waywardness. In our kind of legal framework, you could say this is the difference between manslaughter and premeditated murder. But the important thing to realize about unintentional sin is that it's in contrast to sin of defiance or what the Hebrew would describe as sin with a raised hand, right? A fist in the air. And so there's different types of sin in the framework of God. And we see this kind of sin with a raised fist in Numbers 15, verses 30 to 31. It says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, in other words, they do something out of rebellion. They don't do something because they didn't know better or because they're immature. They did something specifically out of rebellion. If someone did something out of rebellion with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, and he reviles the Lord, well, that person shall be cut off from his people because he's despised the word of the Lord, meaning he's despised his, his, his authority, he's broken his commandment, and that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. See, I have to underscore this reality because we, and I'm not saying this is always a wrong thing, but what we do is we take this current understanding of Jesus and then we read it back into the Old Testament, which we should do. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But we should also have a proper understanding of the Old Testament. And what you need to realize is if you committed a high-handed sin, in other words, you said, forget what God says, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want, and then you did it, there was no sacrifice for you. The consequence was you get cut off from God's people, period. There was sacrifice for unintentional sin. But for high-handed sin out of rebellion, the consequence in the old covenant in the law was that you got cut off. 
Now, you may have heard people say that sin means to miss the mark. And when people say that, they're referring to unintentional sin. And so what are some biblical examples of unintentional sin? That's sin of ignorance. I didn't know it was wrong or I'm really weak and, you know, I just did something stupid. Okay. Um, an example of that would be Jesus on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They what? They know not what they do. In other words, they had no idea that they were killing the author of life, these soldiers. Or how about when Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says, I obtained mercy because I persecuted the church ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, Paul wasn't trying to fight against God with some kind of high-handed defiance. Paul actually thought he was doing the right thing. And so that is a sin of unintentional ignorance, okay? And so there's this, bit, there's this difference in the old covenant between unintentional sin, sin of ignorance, sin because I didn't understand, sin because my flesh is weak, versus high-handed, I rebel against you on purpose. You know, you can picture all the things that high-handed refers to. So what does this have to do with us? Well, realize that unintentional sin is an important concept for us to grasp as well. This is sin that grows from a weakness in our own flesh. This is a sin that comes from an imperfect insight into the word of God. And then afterward, you look back with shame and regret. I'll give you two examples from real life. Um, many of you have heard of the um, televangelist, prosperity, false teacher, Benny Hinn. Have you heard of Benny Hinn? If you, you can go on YouTube and you can watch videos where they people have like done these mashups of Benny Hinn shooting lightning bolts out of his hands to make people fall over in the spirit. Um, you know, Benny Hinn is, he's a heretical teacher, a prosperity teacher. These guys who, they sell magic water, and if you buy this water, all your, your, you know, your illnesses will go away, these sorts of things. Well, Benny Hinn's nephew, Costi Hinn, was raised in that world. But then eventually, he started reading the word and talking to gospel-centered people, and he made full repentance abandoning his family and basically saying, my family are a bunch of heretics. Now, so for Costi, his, his sin as taking part in that as a young man growing up wasn't some high-fisted, you know, middle finger to the Lord. He was operating out of ignorance. And then once he understood the word of God more, it began to change. And so that's a picture of unintentional sin. Another example is when, if, and I think we've all encountered this, if you're a believer, you've encountered this, that as you are reading the word and uncovering the reality of the scriptures, you realize there are certain things that you didn't know were wrong until you came face to face with it, and then you say, oh, <laughs> okay? A perfect example of that is when Jesus says, if you even look upon a woman with lust, it's the same as committing adultery. And so when you're 18 years old and you're a new Christian and you read that verse for the first time, you go, oh, okay. 
Okay, so the point is unintentional sin is this is things you didn't realize before, and then the Holy Spirit graciously convicts you down the road, because if he convicted you of everything at once, you'd melt like raiders of the lost ark, okay? And he convicts you down the road, and then you become aware of it, and you feel shame, and you feel dirty, but then God reminds you that in Jesus you've been forgiven, okay? That's unintentional sin, now, the reason I'm, I'm kind of camping out on this is because some of you grew up in religious persuasions where when you think, well, am I going to go to heaven? If I stood before God, what would I say? And your immediate response is, well, I think I've been a pretty good person. You know, I've never killed anyone and I've never, you know, I've never stolen anything of, of real value. And, and, and I think I'm pretty good and I hope I've been good enough. And that's a very common thing for people to say or think, and maybe some of you are even thinking it right now in your head. But this is the problem with that line of thinking. That line of thinking ignores all unintentional sin to which you are currently ignorant. Okay? The Word of God says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength 24 hours a day, seven days a week from the time of conception until the time of your death. That is the metric by which we will be judged. And I'm pretty sure we don't even necessarily know what that means, let alone actually follow it out. You see, we tend to ignore our unintentional sin and then only focus on our sin of intention, on our willful sins, as if God's holiness is only bothered by the big stuff. Well, as a parent, you know that's not true. You're just as annoyed when your child doesn't put their shoes on as when they say, forget you, I'm not wearing shoes ever again, okay? Both of them are frustrating to you as a parent. And similarly, unintentional sin is just as destructive, maybe not just as, it's destructive in different ways, See, but Jesus flipped all of this upside down by saying that just because you don't willfully act on something doesn't mean you're not sinning. That's why he says it's just as bad to be angry with a brother as to murder them. It's just as bad to lust as to commit adultery. And so the point is that we are often unaware of just how sinful we actually are. But just because we are unaware at the time doesn't mean that our actions or our thoughts weren't sinful, neither does it mean that we aren't responsible for them. And so that should give us pause. Because once the Holy Spirit, which is God's vehicle for conviction and change, shines light on our past or present sin, it is now our full responsibility to deal with it accordingly. And so this is the picture that we have in the sin offering. Because where there was no law, sin was not counted. But now God has brought the law, and now as they teach the law, all of a sudden there's going to be this litany of things that the people are saying, oh, I didn't know that was a sin. Oh, I didn't know that was a sin. Oh, I didn't know that was a sin. Which would explain things such as, why would Abraham lie to king so-and-so and say, Sarah's actually my sister, and then let the king marry her? Well, because he was ignorant. But then once those things are clearly communicated, now we're responsible for them. And in the Old Testament, to not act on, on this, to not act on conviction 
was to have a high-handed rebellion against God. And as we read in Numbers, the consequence was to be cut off from the people of God. In the New Covenant, by the way, this then becomes that if we have high-handed refusal to repent, God's people, um, someone who doesn't, refuses to repent, is excommunicated from the church and handed over to Satan to be sifted. And so we see that same process of being cut off from the people. All right, now I'm going to, that's first two verses, okay? <laughs> we're not going to like, we're not hashing out every verse. I'm, I do want to read these next, this next paragraph though. Now, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he's committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dungs, dung, and all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood on the ash heap it shall be burned. Okay. So, if you read the following paragraphs, they're going to basically tell you that same process with some differences about differences of animals and differences of where the blood goes. And so there's a couple things you need to know before we focus on the real matter at hand here. Um, different types of animals were required by different socioeconomic class. The anointed priest had to bring a bull, that is to say the high priest. There was a bull for the community of Israel. There was a male goat for the civil leader, a, a female goat or a female lamb for the common person. It's important to note that the lamb was for the common person. Why is that important to note? Because Jesus is called the lamb of God, not the bull of God. Jesus is a sacrifice for the common person, right? Not for the political elite. He's the sacrifice for all. Two doves or two pigeons for the poor, an ephah of flour for the very poor, but without olive oil or frankincense. So what you offered or what you sacrificed depended on your socioeconomic class so that it was something actually proportionate to who you were. Generally speaking, how did this work? Uh, you have a little graph, a little picture on your paper, okay? Generally speaking, this is what would happen. You would present your sacrifice at the door to the tabernacle, you would lay your hand on the animal. Now, this is important because when you lay your hand on the animal, this is representing the reality that you are giving the animal your sin. All right, that's what this represented. Everybody who went through this understood what they were doing. I'm giving my sin to the animal, okay? In other words, you knew this animal was going to die instead of you. Let me rephrase that. You knew you were going to kill that animal on your behalf because it was your responsibility to kill it. 
okay? And so you want to talk about a really present reminder of your sin? Every time you sin, you have to go kill an animal. You killed it, right? You didn't get to give it to the priest to kill it. You did it. You would confess the sin that led to this specific sacrifice out loud, Leviticus 5.5. You would kill the animal, Then the priest would sprinkle the blood, and where he sprinkled the blood depended on who was the person who was in the offering. If it was a poor man, the blood was sprinkled around the altar. If the offering were that of a ruler or a common person, the blood was applied upon the horns of the altar of sacrifice, which you can see in that picture. If it was the high priest who sinned and the congregation because of the high priest's sin, he took the blood into the holy place, sprinkled it on the blood seven times toward the veil, then on the horns of the altar, and then at the the bronze altar. So why is the difference? The difference is this. If I'm the high priest and I'm unintentionally tarnished and currently ignorant to it, I'm the one who's going in and out of the tabernacle. And every time I go in and out of God's house, what am I doing? I'm defiling God's house. And so that's why for the high priest, the blood had to be more pervasively spread. The rest of the blood is poured out on the altar or the base of the altar sacrifice. The fat and the kidneys were burned. The skin of the, the body of the animal was, goes to the ash sheep. And the skin of the animals, um, if the skin is of a sheep, it was kept by the priest. But if it was of the bull, the priest had to burn it up. Why? If a common person sinned and I'm the high priest and then I do this sacrificial process on their behalf, God hears their call, I keep the skin of the lamb because I have done my job as the high priest mediating between this person and God. The fact that I get to keep the skin shows that it worked. But if the high priest sins and I sacrifice the bull, the skin I can't keep. I have to go burn it. Why? Because there is no covering. I failed the people. And so now I'm in the process of of kind of hitting the reset button. And so because it was the high priest's sin, they had to burn the skin. But this is what I want to focus on here. Notice that when the high priest sins, we see this. It says, verse 3, if the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on all the people. Notice that when the high priest sins, it impacts everybody else. If he was unclean and didn't realize it, then and he offered a sacrifice for you, guess what? Your sacrifice wasn't accepted. If the high priest wasn't clean, then everything he did, every worship he initiated, every sacrifice he did, every offering he did, every blessing he gave, all of it was null. And none of it was accepted. And the point of that is this, sin is never without consequence. There's no such thing as doing sin in secret. There's no such thing as doing as sinning in darkness because nobody will know, okay? Sin is destructive because sin in essence defiles. It fractures our relationship with God. It fractures our relationship with the people around us. And if you're a leader, you become a lid for the people around you. They cannot progress because you're essentially blocking them. And even if people don't know about it, the consequence for sin remains without forgiveness. Sin costs death. 
even unintentional sin in this old law required death. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. See, these people were very much aware of this reality as they had to kill their animal. That God cannot simply ignore sin because he is just. And as a just God, he is a good God. He is a good judge. And a good judge doesn't ignore justice. A good judge divvies out justice. Hebrews 2 puts it this way. If every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is our way out. The only way for the guilty to go free is for the innocent to suffer. That's why I had to lay my hand on the sacrifice. Pass my sin to this sacrificial animal so the animal could be killed, so that I could go free, so I could get reprieve. Why? Because God is holy, holy, holy. He cannot tolerate sin in his presence. He has to mete out justice. But God is also merciful, providing a way for his people to be atoned. And so the summary here, the purpose of the sin offering was to cleanse and forgive the worshiper for unintentional, non-defiant sins where no payback was required. The payback sins are in the next section. And God would accept the animal's blood as payment for the sin, and then the animal's blood would purify or cleanse away the defilement that was caused by the sinner's presence in God's, in God's land. And so this sacrifice satisfies two aspects of atonement, both purification as well as payment. And so let's, let's pull this to the New Testament. Looking to Jesus. I hope that you see the tension in these sacrifices. You have an imperfect priest you have an imperfect sacrifice because the blood of bulls could never permanently take away sin. And you have an imperfect people living in the midst of a holy, perfect God. What a dark and dismal situation. If you are realizing anything from Leviticus... I hope that you're realizing this system, the system of the law, was oppressive. It was oppressive. Who will stand before this holy God for us when our anointed priests are, in some cases, a bunch of idiots as we go through the Old Testament? Who, what sacrifice can I bring that could redeem my life? Oh, let me rephrase that. What sacrifice could I bring that will cover the sins people know about, let alone the ones they don't know about? Can I ever be good enough? Can I ever be pure enough? Can I ever not unintentionally sin or willfully sin enough that I, can, I don't have to constantly be afraid every time I step out of my tent. 
And if we're honest, we can understand why the Pharisees worked so hard not to mess up. Because it was expensive. <laughs> it was expensive. I mean, you can understand why they would create rules so they felt like they were actually fulfilling the law. But they fell in love with their rules more than the word and the law itself. See, this was the law. And then realize this. There's maybe two or three people in this room who have Israelite blood in them. Guess what, guys? For the rest of us, this wasn't even an option. Wasn't even an option. People like you and me, what was our hope? We had none. No hope. Until John the Baptist steps onto the scene in John chapter 1. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, who, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who would take away the sin of the world, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, the animal for the everyman, not for the political elite. Jesus, the high priest, anointed to that role by the descending spirit who would bring the sacrifice to the Father and be the sacrifice himself. Jesus, who baptizes people with the Holy Spirit, not washing away the dirt on the outside, but washing away the sin once for all from our very souls. And this is why we celebrate the incarnation. This is why we celebrate the arrival, the advent of Jesus. Because for thousands of years, we had imperfect priests and imperfect sacrifices and imperfect people waiting for the perfect solution. And it came. And so what do we do in response? I want to direct your attention briefly to 1 John. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5, John, who wrote those same words in the Gospel of John, said, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And if we say, listen to this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation, the wrath-paying sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only as Jews, but for the sins of the world. So what do we do in response? Well, one, we acknowledge the holiness of God. A holiness cannot tolerate sin. We acknowledge the destructive nature of of sin, we acknowledge the role that sin plays in our own lives, and we acknowledge that Jesus is the only propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sin of the of the world. That is what we acknowledge. And we confess that we confess the sin that God is bringing to light as He convicts us and lays us bare, and we ask Him to forgive us and to deliver us from future temptation and current. And we thank him for the forgiveness that he promises for those who ask and those who believe. And we walk in freedom. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the gospel. And it's worth sharing. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know if there are people in this room who have never heard or responded to the gospel. I pray that the gospel was clear to them. I pray that you would stir their affections and that they would not leave today without having fallen on their face and surrender to you and asking for you to forgive them by faith. The faithfulness of Christ as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest for us, an imperfect people, to create a perfect people, a people for his very own who are eager to worship you, to wait for you, and to do good works on your behalf. God, I pray that your gospel would always be clear to us, and I pray that as we go into this Christmas season, we would remember the importance of the Incarnation that all that the law pointed to came in Christ. Truly, he came to fulfill the law. We thank you for that fulfillment. And in your name we pray. Amen. Have a good week.